0: Tiki Hut Media Pop the top on your favorite beer or whatever you drink from Tiki Hut Media This is Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker Hey there, got my beer in hand I'm Jerry coming to you from Tiki Hut Media Studios in Northwest Tennessee We'll also talk about how to deal with these Critics and how we need more creators and fewer critics. I've been guilty of being a critic myself. Plus, we're going to follow up with this idea of being called. We talked about our calling last week on last week's episode. We'll follow up with some more thoughts about that from Jonah this week. And as you sip on that beer, that glass of wine, whatever you drink, head over to the Soul Ramblings Podcast Substack page. Got the link in the show notes. And be sure to put your email in that little box thingy that'll pop up there. And then most of the time, you'll be glad you did so. Because no one, I, I know no one, me included, wants to get more email, be inundated with more email. And so I really appreciate the privilege of you inviting me into your inbox. And if you subscribe, you will be doing that. And I am so, so thankful for that. As a free subscriber, doesn't cost you anything. You won't have to worry about missing anything here because you'll get updates in your inbox, including blog posts, our Sunday Ramblings devotionals that we come out with every Sunday morning, and you'll get alerts when a new episode of the podcast drops. You can even listen to that new episode in the email. Now, Soul Ramblings is listener supported listener and reader supported so if you can afford it please consider would you please consider a paid subscription to help keep us going I would really really appreciate it it's only five dollars a month or an annual subscription for fifty dollars a year if you can't afford it it is not a requirement no explanations are required there are no worries I want you to continue to read, listen, and engage for free. Either way, whether you're a free subscriber or a paid subscriber, you can always see and hear everything. So subscribe on our Substack page, grab a beer, come on in, everybody's welcome, and thank you for being here. Since we were kids, many of us have heard the story, we're very familiar with the story we call Jonah and the Whale. And in this story, a prophet named Jonah gets direction from God to go to a city called Nineveh and preach to the people there, to call them to account for their sinful behavior. But instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah does what a lot of us do, he runs away. He gets on a boat, heading in the opposite direction. It turns out escaping God's call is not so easy. And as the story goes, Jonah ends up swallowed by a big fish. We have, over time, assumed that was a whale. Basically, he experiences a divine time out, and amazingly enough, it works. After three days, Jonah repents and prays, and the fish vomits him onto dry land. This time, Jonah does what God says. He stomps his way across Nineveh, preaching probably the shortest sermon ever. And what's really shocking is that it's one of the most effective sermons ever the people of Nineveh repent. They turn away from their sinful ways. God has mercy on them and decides not to destroy the city after all. All's well that ends well, right? Well, (laughs) that's not the end of the story, though, because even though we usually turn Jonah's story into a cautionary tale about trying to run away from God's call— what happens at the end suggests that this story has another important lesson to teach us as we continue this week talking about our call and answering God's call. Listen to these verses from the last chapter of Jonah's story. Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah, to give shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush, so it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and asked that he might die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, Yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand people who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? In a psychological study a few years ago, pairs of college students were recruited to play a game of Monopoly, but the game was rigged. With a flip of a coin, one of the two players in each game was assigned to be the rich player. This player got more money up front than the other player and received more money every time he went around the board. Most of the pairs figured out what was happening and, as you would expect, the rich player nearly always won the game. What you might not have expected is how this experience influenced the attitudes and thoughts of the rich players in each pair. As they played, the rich players quickly began to exhibit increasingly dominant and assertive behavior, striking their pieces loudly against the board as they moved, displaying power over the poor player verbally and nonverbally even taking more from the bowl of snacks that they had there. The rich players also behaved more rudely toward the poor player, were less sensitive to the poor player's experience and frustration, and became more demonstrative of their own wealth and success, virtual though it was. When the game was over, the scientists interviewed the players about their experiences playing this rigged game, and at this point, everyone knew the game had been rigged, And yet, when they asked the rich players why they won, the players talked about decisions they had made, properties they had bought, ways they had earned their success, completely discounting the fact that their success had been predetermined by a roll of the dice before the game ever started. Jonah was a Hebrew, one of God's chosen people. And if God chose Jonah to be a prophet, probably it was because Jonah had shown himself to be faithful, earnest in his desire to follow God's ways. But Jonah's faithfulness has its limits. And and Jonah discovers what those limits are when God tells him to go to the city of Nineveh and tell the people there of God's love and mercy. Jonah doesn't want to go. And it turns out there's a good reason Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go and preach to the people of Nineveh. There's a good reason for that. Nineveh was the capital of the ruthless Assyrian empire, an empire that it terrorize the israelites the people of nineveh were the enemies of the israelites so it's no wonder jonah balked when god told him to go and preach to them about god's love and mercy for as jonah knows god is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love ready to relent from punishing and jonah isn't so sure he wants to see nineveh get that he doesn't want to see nineveh on the receiving end of god's grace What happens to Jonah at the end of the book of Jonah when the plant gives him shade and it withers and he feels the effects of the sun and the hot wind? It's a perfect example of someone fighting against the current of God's mercy and grace. Jonah is convinced that the Ninevites should never be on the receiving end of God's mercy. They should not have gotten it. And he is equally convinced that he deserves whatever blessings God offers him. He's caught in the cycle of judgment, and condemnation, struggling to extend to his enemies the same grace God has offered to him. It's a pattern of judgment we all get caught in. We judge ourselves worthy or unworthy in spite of the evidence to the contrary. We judge others by their appearance, their achievements, or their lack of achievements, failing to see the many, many factors that contribute to their success or failure. We become trapped in a cycle of judgment, unable to extend compassion, empathy, or love. There's a story in the Gospel of John Jesus is teaching in the the temple when a group of religious leaders bring this disgraced woman before Jesus to test his knowledge of the law and his willingness to enforce it. We've talked about this in recent weeks. These men are all stirred up by the currents of culture and privilege. After all, if the woman was indeed caught in the act of adultery, as they claim, then somewhere there was also a man caught in the act as well. But Jesus refuses to get drawn into that discussion about law, and he refuses to condemn the woman. Here and throughout his ministry, Jesus keeps trying to teach us the same thing God tried to teach. Jonah, God is not transactional. Let me say that again. God is not transactional. God is not obsessed with right and wrong, guilt and punishment, success and rewards. God is obsessed with loving us just as we are. Because God is relentlessly relational. Time and again, particularly with those on the margins who have spent their whole lives fighting these currents of prejudice, Jesus sets aside judgment and shows us what it looks like to choose compassion. Father Gregory Boyle once said, The measure of our compassion lies in our willingness to see ourselves in kinship with each other, with the folks who are on the margins. For there is an idea that has taken root in the world, that there just might be lives out there that matter less than other lives. To move past this idea that some lives matter more than others, Boyle suggests service. When we serve another, he says, we move toward experiencing the kind of compassion that can stand in awe of what another person has to carry, rather than standing in judgment of how they carry it. Service frees us for compassion because it puts us in relationship with those we are most likely to judge. It enables us to, as the poet Wendell Berry puts it, imagine lives that aren't ours. When Jonah finally does go to Nineveh after his time in the belly of the whale or the large fish, he simply walks a straight line through the city, preaches his seven-word sermon, and then he leaves. He doesn't stop to learn anything about who the Ninevites are, he doesn't interact at all with the people who live there, and as a result, he has no real capacity to imagine their lives or empathize with their challenges. This is not service. This is not relationship. And so Jonah remains trapped in ignorance and judgment. At the 2016 Oscars, Lady Gaga performed the song Till It Happens to You from a documentary about sexual assault on college campuses. The lyrics are, Till it happens to you, you don't know how I feel. Till it happens to you, you won't know. It won't be real. On the one hand, that song is exactly right. How can we ever truly know the nature of another person's experience, especially if it's a horrific, traumatic experience we haven't had? On the other hand, in order to faithfully follow a relentlessly relational God, we're going to have to find ways to feel and show compassion for people whose experience is not our own, for people we will never fully understand. Compassion comes when we set aside judgment and focus on what we have in common, our God-given identity as beloved children who have discovered in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we are beloved not because of who we are or what we've done, but simply because we belong to God and God chooses love. God chooses love, even Jonah in his anger, even the religious authorities with their unjust accusations, even the Ninevites who persistently violated God's ways, God chooses to love even us, even when our ignorance and our rush to judgment prevents us from showing love and compassion to those who need it most. And it is God's love, love most fully revealed in the incarnation, when God decided to put God's own self in our human experience. It is in that love that the soul finds its worth. It's not in our actions or our piety that confirms our worth or our value. It's the fact that God created us, God calls us, God's own. God loves us no matter what, enough to be with us as one of us without judgment or condition. In a letter to Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton wrote, Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, and in fact, it's nobody's business. What we are asked to do is love. And this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy, if anything can. What we are asked to do is to love, and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy, if anything can. Friends, God is calling us to Nineveh, to that place and that people we cannot imagine are worthy of God's love or our time. God calls us to love others with the kind of love that does not stop to ask whether they are deserving of it. We can run from that call or outright refuse it, but imagine what will happen, what might happen, if we dared to accept it. Glory to God. Amen. It seems these days everybody's a critic. Just look at the things posted in the comments section of any article or online posting or social media and you're going to find several people posting long explanations of everything they didn't like or disagreed with. And now, to be honest, criticism isn't always bad, but so often the way it's expressed in our time isn't very helpful. Technology has shifted a great deal of our interactions with each other from personal connection to online, and that's anonymous way of interacting with each other online has created internet personas who have a knack for starting arguments. I've seen it happen and I've tried, there have been people that have tried to pull me into that crap before. Unfortunately, Christians are no exception for followers of Jesus. And we claim to have the love of God in our hearts. Friends. We don't always act like, we, we don't reflect the not fitting of the God we serve. Jesus tells his followers, we will be known by our love. And anyone that reads our online posts or the comments that we write under Christian articles by Christian people, they might struggle to see it, see that love. There are few people more biting or cruel than Christians who believe that you have your theology wrong. In the name of protecting the faith, we use weaponized dogma to destroy anyone who disagrees with us. The Christian community so often seems to be just as critical as anyone else. We fight and argue with each other. We shoot our own. We wound our, our own. Even our friendly debates end up sounding pretty hostile at times. Anyone who takes a stance on anything is going to get criticized. Mean spirited criticism. Has become so prevalent in our lives, we don't even notice it anymore. But maybe, maybe we should take a second look. I'm—we've got—we're uh, into a new year, and just a couple of months away from spring training, and Major League Baseball is going to get underway. And I love watching Major League Baseball. I get into this thing where I talk about <laughs> comment about players who make mistakes and miss opportunities. And I'll say things like, that guy's terrible. Why'd they put him in? And then we'd say something like, when there's a bad coaching decision or manager decision, he should be fired. And then I realized how ridiculous I sound. <laughs> there are times you're sitting on your comfortable couch watching and mocking players with both talent and knowledge that's far superior to anything that we possess, definitely me, yet we feel completely justified criticizing about how players play the game. Got no reservation about criticizing their performance, even when we ourselves would never be capable of competing on their level. One of my favorite quotes is from Theodore Roosevelt, author Brene Brown used this in, as the introduction of one of her books. It's called Daring to Lead, or Dare to Lead, rather. And this is the quote from Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly to who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. For all the time we spend criticizing each other, what good comes from it? What beneficial fruit has it reaped in our lives? Has it strengthened our relationships? Has it matured us, challenged us to grow? Improve the quality of our lives, enhanced our personal skill, or is criticism merely just the crutch we use? Do we criticize because we know better and could do better, or do we criticize because we're cowards too afraid to try and fail ourselves? A lot of times, the problem is not with the person criticized, but with the one that is criticizing. Now, disclaimer here, there are times and places for constructive criticism, but so often we just want to be right. So we jump in before we've really considered what the other person has put into the thing we're criticizing. What if we took a break from criticizing and instead tried to create? What if we got off the sidelines and got in the game? What if instead of complaining about how someone else did something, we tried to do it ourselves? In Genesis chapter 1, God creates. He makes the world and everything in it. When the cosmos has been formed, when every detail was made just right, God made man. God created us in his image. We are made in the image of a creator. We were created with the capacity for creativity. Now, I'm not much of an artist. I mean, I can draw a stick figure here and there, but that's about it. I'm not great with music. I appreciate great music and I understand quality art and I am impressed when I hear and see it because it is a skill that I lack. I get lost in the wonder of the talent and creativity of a person that possesses that to make those things that they do. I appreciate what others create because I myself am not gifted with many forms of artistic creativity. Whether we're personally artistic or not, we should appreciate that others express their creativity. It may not always be our style. We may not always agree with how that creativity gets expressed, but we should respect that they are creating something. Look, criticism is easy. It's lazy. It's safe. It's a way for us to present ourselves as better than we are by degrading what others have created or accomplished. We're not reflecting the image of God when we criticize. We are radiating it when we create. The goal of a Christian should not be to tear down the work of others, but to build up the mission of Jesus. It should be to use our own gifts in whatever creative ways we can to express the love and grace of God to the world. We are all creative in different ways. Some with paint, some with words, some with numbers, some with what they can make with their hands. We are made in the image of a creator. We best serve him when we create, not when we tear down the creations of someone else. All right, confession time for me. How many times have you heard, or if you're on social media, scrolled by and you've seen everything happens for a reason, or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? These cliche slogans are based in what is referred to as toxic positivity. And this is according to therapist Whitney Goodman, and she is the author of the book Toxic Positivity. And after reading that book, I realized that these sayings can invalidate, minimize, and yes, gaslight people's trauma and mental health struggles. I didn't realize this. This was eye-opening for me. These things that we say, these phrases that... Maybe sound good can also induce shame and guilt, she says. Why do people say this stuff? Well, assuming the intent is positive, which with me, I have to say, yeah, my intent is positive. It's really because it's really hard. We say these things because it's really hard to know what to say to someone who is struggling. Showing empathy and compassion does not come easy to everyone. It is something we must it's a discipline. We've got to practice it and we've got to have that right motivation. And there were two things that she listed that I am guilty of saying. And when I read this, I went, ouch, (laughs) because I really don't intend to be or have that toxic positivity. I really am trying to have the right motivation here. All right. So, Here's my confession. One of the things she mentions in the book is something that I say. Hurt people hurt people. And now pop culture and social media love this one. I've used it in sermons before. And it's an issue because it's often used to minimize or excuse someone's shitty behavior. Feeling hurt does not give you the green light to hurt others. Hurt people hurt people can squash and silence a person who has been harmed and is trying to speak. And then usually coming next is, well, they did their best. People say this to themselves to ease the hurt they feel from the people who cause them pain. And that's according to Goodman. But you can't say this phrase to others about the people who caused them pain. She says this, the slogan is very out of touch, especially if trauma is involved. There is nothing wrong with the truth. They hurt you, and maybe they didn't do their best. Maybe they did, but they should have done better. You can empathize and seek to understand where people's destructive behavior comes from, but that's very different from just disregarding the pain they brought to someone else. And she gives this as an alternative. Instead of saying, hurt people, hurt people, say instead, I'm sorry they hurt you and didn't give you what you needed. Or... They lack the ability to treat you how you deserve to be treated. Hmm, Those are better. I'm going to work on that. The other one is this, and I've used it recently. We're into January now, but back in November and December, I was really on this have an attitude of gratitude type of mentality, and I really tried to focus on having gratitude, being thankful for what I had. Now, there's nothing really wrong with that. But according to this book, it's simply not appropriate to recommend gratitude as a solution to someone else's problems. Forced gratitude is what is what she's saying it becomes. It's not genuine or helpful. And this is a quote. She said, You don't need to shove your feelings down or change them. It's important to acknowledge, validate, and address them as they are. In other words, yes, it's a good thing to be grateful. It's a good thing to have gratitude, but it should be coming from us naturally. It should be something we want to do, the motivation behind it. It shouldn't be forced. This crappy, shitty thing is happening to you. You need to just have an attitude of gratitude. No, no, that's wrong. You can appreciate or be thankful for your privileges and the good things in your life, but you don't have to do this 24-7. You're not a bad person for not feeling grateful all the time. Now, there, there is, of course, research that shows that gratitude can be helpful, but it works when it's a practice someone chooses to do because it benefits them, not when they're doing it because they've been shamed into it by someone else like a minister or podcast host. True gratitude also involves acknowledging the negatives. So something she a couple of things she suggests to say instead. Is there something going on in your life that feels good? Or I can see and understand that you feel stuck, like you can't move, or see outside of this situation and the hurt you are feeling. I'm committed in 2024 to doing better and not having that toxic positivity. And if you would like to join me in that. Look it up on Amazon. Whitney Goodman is the author, and the book is Toxic Positivity. I invite you to go check that out and see if there's anything in there that changes your way of thinking about something you said. Get social with us on Facebook and Instagram. We have those pages, the links to those pages in the show notes of this episode. Of course, as always, as we told you before, go to Substack. Be sure to subscribe over there if you can. Email is always a way you can get in touch with us. Our email address is soulramblingspodcast at gmail.com. Wherever you're listening today, I would encourage you to go and click subscribe right now, whether you're listening on Spotify, on Pandora, if you're listening on Google Podcast, Apple Music, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio. We are on so many platforms go and click subscribe right now. You'll never miss a new episode when it comes out of Soul Ramblings Podcast. I want to thank you for, as always, for the gift and privilege of your time today. I know your time is valuable and you are spending your time here today with us and I really, really do appreciate that. And We wrap up each episode with my favorite Bible verse, Philippians 4, 8, today reading from the Phillips translation of the New Testament. Here is a last piece of advice. If you believe in goodness and you value the approval of God, fix your minds on whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and praiseworthy. We'll see you back here next week on Soul Ramblings Podcast. I'm Jerry Wicker. Thank you for being here. Grace, peace, cheers. Thanks for listening to Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker download new episodes every week and if you haven't already subscribe and be sure to leave us a rating and review soul ramblings is a tiki hut media production